First of all, I just want to say we're currently in the middle of a severe thunderstorm, which I actually have a story about later, assuming the power stays on long enough for me to finish recording. So, fingers crossed. <clears throat> this is a super bottle show. This is pretty much the er definition of a bottle show. I'm not sure I've ever seen one that hits the mark as much as this one. We have a grand total of three sets and seven actors total. Most bottle shows certainly are cheaper, but they still use the main cast and multiple sets and, like, one guest star. This episode is one of the cheapest ones they've ever produced. Which is funny, because if you're paying attention, they already blew most of their budget up front. Remember that? So this episode was basically necessary to you know, balance the books. Okay, I'm with that. It's also directed by David Livingston, and is focused entirely on Reed and Tucker. It's also the first episode that actually legitimately made me feel. This is the first episode that I would say is really, really, a Star Trek episode amongst Enterprise. Oh, I'm willing to bend and break, and I have a huge range in between good and bad that Enterprise kind of bounces around on. But this one, this one caught me. And I didn't expect it to. I'm going to go and admit something. I mentioned several times that I haven't rewatched season one and season two. One of the things that, that that's kind of an asterisk to that is I used to watch another ex-YouTuber, ex-Vimeo guy, <laughs> it's kind of a joke at this point, called Sci-Fi Debris. I've mentioned him a few times. Now, I, I didn't really intend to stop watching him. You know, I, I just don't really have time to watch other content creators. I'm busy. That whole efficiency thing I mentioned a few episodes ago, which was actually yesterday from my perspective. But no. Oh, there's the power starting to flip. Uh, if nothing else, the recording won't shut off, but we might suddenly have no lights for a few minutes. And if it keeps being bad, well, we'll be on battery backup, which only lasts about an hour. So I may have to wrap this up pretty quickly. Point being, I watched several of his episodes on Enterprise, where he tore Enterprise to shreds, including this episode, actually. And that's it. So I watched it the one time, and then I watched his thing on it, and that was my exposure to this. So I was kind of left with the vague impression that this episode sucked. Now, personal taste is personal taste. If anything has taught me, it is Star Trek. If anything has taught me that, it's Star Trek, because, my goodness, we can't agree on anything when it comes to Star Trek. Which actually is really awesome and one of my favorite things about Star Trek. As long as we stay within the realm of reasonable, which, for the most part, we do... We can argue back and forth as much as we want. Earlier this year, that is to say from your perspective, earlier this week from my perspective, I put out a poll for people to vote for their top five most rewatched and bottom five most rewatched TNG and DS9 episodes for the conclusionary video to that, which actually, as of my perspective, that poll's still going. So I don't know the results of it yet. But I do know, because I've been paying attention to it, that a lot of the same episodes are on both lists. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That the fact that there's an episode which some people are like, oh, I can't wait to rewatch that. And then other people are like, ugh, God, I'm never rewatching that again. And that we can all have that, we can have those completely contrasting opinions about the exact same episode is kind of awesome. But for me, this is a great episode. This is easily my favorite episode so far. This is definitely going on the rewatch list. The burn list, the rip list, 
We're going to have to come up with something for that. I don't even know. Anyways, <clears throat> we got some time to workshop it. About a year. So, super duper bottle show. Um, and David Livingston is doing the directing, and he manages to absolutely nail it, as he always does. He knows how to bring out performance, and he knows how to use his camera. Just a really minor bit, but early on, one of my favorite shots is actually a camera behind a ladder. But the ladder's in the way so that it's it's mostly just, you can tell there's a ladder there, adding framing to the shot, and, and then you get a good shot of the length of the pot as a whole. And the two actors, uh, Dominic Keating and Mr. Trenier, had to work in an extremely tiny set for this whole episode and really, really do a good job of it. Like, that set is much smaller than it looks, and they use some camera angles to kind of make it look a little less cramped, but damn, that's impressive. Anyways, let's get on to the episode proper. So, the Superman metaphor, there's this bit at the beginning where uh, they're talking about, you know, Malcolm and, and Tucker are talking about the the relative upbringing they had, you know, all those trashy science fiction things, and and you know, obviously Tucker's like, oh, now, now I'll have you know, Superman is loaded with metaphor and subtext, which is funny because he's absolutely right, ignoring the obvious original purpose of Superman, which was about, um, I can't think of the word all of a sudden, uh, being someone who moves from one place to another, not a refugee, uh, like a step, step adjacent to that. Um, oh my god, I can't think of what it's called. Damn it. And I don't actually have internet right now because the power knocked out my internet. So I can't look it up. Please don't give me tons of comments giving me the answer. Uh, but Superman was originally that word. Please don't put the answer in the comment section below. And, you know, that's awesome. But also, immigrant. There we go. Ha! Now you can't do it. But also, Superman comics really do have a lot of really awesome stuff in them when they're good. I've noticed the variance between good and bad Superman is gargantuan. A little bit of Twilight Zone effect going on there. But either way, then they apparently still have regional identities on Earth, which is kind of awesome, actually. Ignoring the fact that it's only been at most three generations since the Vulcans showed up and Earth completely repaired and re rejiggered itself in order to enter into the new future, there's still a lot of reason to, A, identify more as being a European than a North American, and B, to root for the home team. I've talked a lot against tribalism, but ultimately most of the ways in which I talk against tribalism are either when I feel it's misapplied, like Star Trek versus Star Wars, or when it goes to an extreme, like hooliganism. To, to, there's nothing wrong with rooting for your team. There's nothing wrong with competition. There's nothing wrong with good-natured rivalry and you know, PvP. It's it's the assholes who really ruin it, right? I mean, if you really boil it down, the people who are violating Rule Zero, don't be a dick, are the people who really are actually causing the problems, not the competition or the rival or anything else. You could say it's more inclined towards that, and I could see the reasoning there, but I stand by my point firmly. I just kind of like the idea that they still have the whole regional thing. I actually mentioned this in um, Silent Enemy because they talked about the Royal Navy still being a thing. And this kind of helps to continue to add that there's still just a little bit of that regional rivalry thing going on. But it's okay, because it's not a big deal. It's not being taken to an extremes like horrific warfare or economic subjugation or genocide. It's just rooting for your team, which I'm with. Then, 
Well, then they found the debris, and it's like, oh. That is a very interesting and effective cold open. Because it is then immediately followed by Enterprise being fine. At first, I thought that was a mistake, but thinking about it again, I actually really like that narrative construct. It is, once again, a classic example of the Hitchcockian rules of suspense that I have referred to many times. In this case, we know they don't. I know I mix up whether left and right is big. I just do the visual thing. You get the idea. We know what's going on. We know Enterprise is fine. They don't. The funny thing is this actually applies in reverse, too. Because as the course of the episode goes, we know that the shuttle crew are screwed, that they are in terrible danger. But until pretty late into the episode, the Enterprise crew don't know that. So the rule is maintained. They're just like, yeah, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Just another day in the office. We have plenty of time. Let's just take a moment, you know, do some scans, try and figure some stuff out. You know, just, just whatever. It's just normal. Because why would they be in a rush? And there's something uniquely horrific about that. I've actually seen some horror, uh, horrifying things, especially in gaming, do that concept where one person's like, oh God, oh God, I'm going to die, I need help, I need help, please. But they can't contact this person who doesn't know they're in danger. And so we have this horrific juxtaposition of, ah, and do, 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 do. And sometimes they show this person's reaction to the, ah, or the after effects after they failed to save them. And it's just like, what? I, I, I didn't know. And how about that phrase? I was just walking down the street. I didn't, I didn't read. They were, they were screaming and dying while I was just, think about it. So already we've got some good suspense, some good cold open, and some good recipe for drama. That is to say, actual drama. Not melodrama, not drama, which I speak against often. I think the storm might have moved on, so I'm sure we're good. Universe, you want to make sure I still have power? And I have internet too, but I don't need it for this. Although, I kind of do, because remember, my only sources of info for Enterprise are online. I may have to take a break just because I have no internet. <laughs> Damn it, Universe! So, they talk about this other race that they're helping out, and that's the source of the debris, and they got hit by a micro-singularity, which doesn't exist, of course. I mean, why would Archer possibly believe something that his Vulcan science officer, which he has struggled and worked very hard to make sure is still on his crew, as of last episode, why would he ever actually try to give her any leeway and believe her for a millisecond? In fact, to continue talking about this for a moment, much later in the episode, she comes by and mentions that, no, the micro-singularities are real, and this is a real problem. His then response is, oh my god, we got to help save the crew. And she's like, uh, yeah, but I, I didn't mean to imply that they were less important than the, the major scientific discovery. And his response is, time's wasting. Archer, stop being a dick for five seconds, could you? It's also worth noting that my favorite episode by far so far has three scenes, well, four scenes, if we count the dream sequence with Archer in it. And each of them is quite short. Huh. Anyways. So, this cuts to Reed. What the heck do we do? Reed has already tacticked out the, the thing, because he's a tactician. You know, that's his, his line of thinking. Tucker's an engineer, and speaking as someone who has worked a lot of his professional life around engineers and has engineer family members, mm, let's bring that back to family member because I don't know if I count her anymore. But anyways, family member, 
engineers look at a problem and they say, okay, how do I fix it? And once they fix it, they say, okay, how do I make it better? And then it's broken, so they say, how do I fix it? It's, it's a wonderful cycle. But I'm not actually joking. The mindset of an engineer sees a problem and immediately starts troubleshooting. That's just the mentality. Because that's what they do. That is literally their job. To constantly try and figure out what's going wrong, and then figure out how to fix it in a way that hopefully won't break anything else, but it will, at which point they need to figure out what's going wrong, and so forth and so on. Like I said, it is a cycle. I'm not meaning that as a meme kind of a thing. So he's, Tucker's trying to think his way through this. Reed's thinking, well, we're dead, so now what? So they have an argument. They have an interesting argument. Um, and there's some tensions, and there's some reality. One of the things Sci-Fi Debris complained about was that he really hated the dynamic and arguments between Tucker and Reed, and he constantly made fun of Tucker. Allow me to personally and professionally disagree with that. I think Tucker's character moments in this episode are awesome. And I'm going to try and build up why I think that is. You might say, well, it's because he's stressed. Yeah, they're both pretty stressed. Allow me to segue for just a second. You ever heard of The Day After? No, not The Day After Tomorrow. The Day After is a movie by Nicholas Meyer, which I actually highly recommend. It's a really good film. And really, really horrifying film. It is uh, a fairly... How do I phrase this? I've talked about this film before. It's a film that shows kind of a direct ground view, individual person perspective on what might happen if the bombs fell back during the Cold War. Now, the reason I kind of hesitated there was because I was about to say it's a realistic portrayal, but actually, no. For how realistic the movie is, and it is very realistic, they lowballed. The actual estimates that actual people had, you know, professionals had come up with, which they researched for the making of that film, were that things would be much worse than they showed. And so they were like, Let, let's pull it back a little bit. And if you've seen that film, that's impressive. But I bring that film up because there's a scene where there's these guys at a missile base. Uh, I don't remember where. It's somewhere in Kansas. I know there's one there because I used to live near it decades ago. And um, so there's this missile base there, and they've just shot their missiles. And then they just stand around, and then they freak the hell out in a weirdly understated way. Because, well, there's only two possibilities here. They shot first, so the missiles are on the way, in the air right now. And we have no way of knowing. We have no way of knowing if those missiles are coming. When they hit, there will be no warning. So their missiles are either in the air, and we just got our missiles off on time, or we just shot first, and they will now be retaliating right back at us. It's a unique form of horror, because everything is completely normal and perfectly fine, and nothing's unusual at all except for the fact that you know with near total certainty that you are doomed. Excuse me? I've used that word before, and I want to stress that I mean that in a literal and very serious manner, that you are actually doomed. Not like, oh, we're doomed. No, no. True statement of that word, I've used this a few times on TNG, means there's no hope. Things are not getting better and you are not going to survive this. The end. You are doomed. And there's a weird thing that knowing that does to the mind. And the, and the movie does a good job of showing how different people react to it. Some of them just break. This one woman is just constantly trying to straighten out the, uh, the blankets and just trying to make the bed because 
I mean, what else can you do, right? We're about to die. <sighs> it's okay, we'll duck and cover. We'll be fine, right? The reason I bring all of this up is because this study, this mindset, this mentality of being doomed is exactly what is going through the mind of Tucker and Reed. And seeing how the two react to it throughout the course of the episode is a lot of the strength of the episode. One of the greatest ways to show character is to have characters react to stimuli. Indeed, having multiple characters react to the same stimuli in different ways can also be an excellent way to show character. So, Tucker is trying to think his way through things, right? Reed has already given up, and now he's thinking about, well, now what? The missiles are on their way. Running isn't going to do anything. Standing here isn't going to do anything. Nothing is going to do anything. So what the heck do I do? This then leads to a scene. Reed tries to record a professional log listing the, 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 fa the fate of the Enterprise. Tucker keeps interfering with this. I like this scene. Even though Tucker comes across as rude, what's actually happening here? And there's little tidbits. There's little tidbits where Tucker just kind of has an aside glance, or there's this moment when he's not talking where he just kind of... And credit to the actors, credit to the director. If those tidbits weren't there, if this was being played straight, Tucker would be just straight up an asshole in this episode. But it's made clear that what's actually happening here is Tucker is losing it, just like Reed is. Different ways, different, different approaches, of course. Tucker starts working on the problem. Okay, how do I fix this? How do I make this work? That's Tucker's approach. I got something to work on that'll keep me distracted, that'll keep my mind busy and occupied. I know what that feels like. When things are so bad, some of you who've been watching this series with me a long time know that one of my little coping mechanisms, this is going to sound silly, is doing the dishes. One time when I was going through a horrifically traumatic event, I was visiting my step-parents, and I just got up to start doing the dishes, and my stepdad comes over and is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, doing the dishes. And he just kind of nods, he's like, gotcha. And he just stood there to talk with me for a bit while I was doing it, because I just had to, because I was on the verge of a complete nervous breakdown. Just like Tucker is. Just like Reed is. Reed is leaving that log. And of course he wants to do that. Naturally, he wants people to understand how awesome the Enterprise crew was. That's relevant. Keep it in mind. So, then they find the bourbon by accident. Interesting little tidbit that was probably meant as a gift for the Chancellor back in just the previous episode. Good little bit of continuity there. And then they decide to have their instant microwave food. Nice little tidbit, you know, just just little 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 moments. There's a lot of little moments I don't have much to say about, but they're all very well executed. Just put the food in, pull the food out, and it is basically an instant microwave. It's just like our microwaves, it just takes three seconds instead of a minute and a half. Same overall process. And the food does not appear to be all that good, but at the same time, the only... I, I don't actually agree with that. This is food that's probably designed to be healthy rather than food that's designed to be cheap. That's the main issue with real-life frozen meals. They're designed to be cheap and frozen. I like to think, maybe this is just me being too, uh, too uh, idealistic, that you know Starfleet and Earth have tried to make food that will be as nutritious as possible and last as long as possible because that way it can be emergency rations, right? Sense make, right? There's probably a reason they have a freaking microwave in the shuttle pod. 
Anyways, small character tidbit. There's this bit where Reed takes a bite of the sea bass, and he just has this, oh, no, it's great, it's great, oh, you know, kind of a thing. He does it much more understated than I do, but it's clear he doesn't like it. Why do I find that amusing? Back in Silent Enemy, when the, the stupid B-plot was happening about find, trying to figure out his favorite food, one of the things that was mentioned is that he doesn't like fish. I keep showing my, my work on these little t tidbits of continuity. I feel like I did this in TNG as well, because I do want to give praise to that setting continuity thing. And I like showing my work. I like actually saying, here, look, so that you know I'm not just making something up like I used to do on this show. If you're watching this, you probably don't even remember when I used to do that, because I, this didn't used to be a show. This used to be a hobby where I had no problem mentioning my head cannon as if it was canon. And I haven't done that in God, close to nine years at this point, maybe eight at this point. But still, I used to do that, and I try very hard not to nowadays. Good figure. It is thus, of course, extremely frustrating when someone watches one of my eight-year-old videos and comments on it saying, that's not true, and I'm just like, can I please delete the older stuff? Please! So, this then leads to tensions escalating. This actually, again, makes perfect sense. It kind of makes it out that Tucker's being a dick here, but keep in mind, Tucker's trying to sleep, which they do need sleep, and sleep would also help with the oxygen problem. I hate to point that out. And Reed has been talking on for hours while Tucker is trying to sleep. So, already that's irritating in a totally normal environment where nothing's wrong at all, that would be irritating. Now add the fact that they're doomed, and add the fact that they're going on relative lack of sleep. Once again, we do see how they're trying to interact with it and deal with it in different ways, but I'm kind of with Tucker on this one. Reed, could, could you quit? So, Reed then has a good dream. This right here is pretty much the best example I've ever seen on camera of why I hate good dreams. Now, if you've never heard me talk about that before, let me segue for just a second. Nightmares, so I have extremely lucid dreams, right? Very realistic, very believable, legitimately hard to separate from reality until I wake up and it's like, oh, okay. Like, I, I, what my, obviously there is a different feel to it, a fog, for lack of a better way to put to it, but, when I'm in the dream, it is oftentimes hard for me to tell I am dreaming. Follow? Now, having said all that, oh god, I'm dreaming right now. It makes so much sense. No, okay, jokes aside. Having said all that, bad dreams suck because they're very realistic. I, I don't have bad dreams about being naked in front of class. I have bad dreams about really believable, horrible, terrible things happening to me because uh, at that point they're more memories than dreams right? But, hear me out, then you wake up, and it's like, oh, thank goodness. Then you move on, because it was just a dream. And you already see where I'm going with this. Because a good dream is so much worse, because something really good is happening, and again, believable. Uh, just a few days ago, I had a dream that I was actually present at one of the GDQs, and had been for some time. I was actually originally going to go attend uh, AGDQ 2012 which kind of dates me a little bit, but I've been part of that uh, speedrunning circuit. I don't want to say community, because I'm not really a part of the community, but I've been following that community since 2010 at this point. And I really was actually all geared up to be a part of that, to join them and to be present, run a game or two, and then hopefully, you know, I would still be there now, you know, eight years later, right? 
still be a part of that. And that would be awesome. And that's what the dream was about, that I had done that back then, and it was now, now, and I was still a part of the community. And it was, it was just a great, wonderful, awesome dream. And then I woke up. That's why I hate good dreams. And I feel, I really feel for Reed in this one. If I'm being honest, the dream sequence is a little bit filler. It's easily the worst part of the episode. And it drags on longer than it should. It feels like it was there to literally pad out the runtime because they just, they needed more time to fill out the episode. The, the classic definition of filler. But it's still, the dream itself still, this is why I only have the one note about the dream, because the dream itself still had a relevant point. Things are better. Oh, nope, you're awake. God, that, that, there's something horrific about that feeling. Just horrific. And in my opinion, now granted, I have personal experience with this, but in my opinion, that helped really sell the moment, that feeling of being doomed, better than anything else the episode did up until now to really push you into that mentality of, hey, things are actually okay, and he's heroic, and T'Pol's attractive, okay, cool, and nope, nope, welcome back to hell. So, then something hits him. This is when things get even worse. My first thought was, debris, okay, because space is dangerous, and you... I mean, debris is an extremely horrific problem. That's actually why they invented the deflector dish on Star Trek, all the way back in TOS, was because they wanted to make sure that as they're flying through space, one random little one-centimeter diameter asteroid didn't destroy the entire ship, right? So, at first, that was my thinking. And they go through this whole thing of trying to seal it, which is a good scene, by the way. This scene, by contrast, doesn't feel like it takes too long, because the whole point is they got to find it, and they got to find it, and they start freaking out more and more, and then... Tucker gets an idea, puts us a little bit of nitrogen in the room, so now there's a little bit of fog, so they can see where the leak is. Awesome. Great idea, by the way. And then they plug it, use little mashed potatoes to plug it temporarily, and then they can go get the sealant to plug it permanently. All of that's good stuff. Then they find out, well, shoot, this is much worse than we thought. And we just lost a whole lot of air. And why? Microsingularities. It's the first time they've actually been hit by those. And again, that kind of keeps things concurrent with the episode, since Enterprise was hit by it too, and so was the ship Enterprise rescued by the people who uh, breathe boron gas. I'm not going to comment on that other than, really? How do you heat it? Anyways, <clears throat> we're, we're moving on, we're moving on. So now they find that about, about and they're like, well, shoot. And they just kind of start chatting for a little bit. You notice... They have a weird dynamic. Their chemistry isn't great together, but both actors do a good job in a vacuum, no pun intended, that they manage to play off each other quite well. This is no O'Brien and Bashir, who just gelled with each other perfectly from word go, but this is still a, a decent dynamic between the two. Then they bring up Ruby. I just want you to remember that, okay? Just remember Ruby and how Tucker was into her years ago, back in, uh, what was it, 602 or whatever. Just just do me a favor and remember that, okay? So, then they talk about, okay, we can lower the temperature to negative 5 centigrade. That would be 23 degrees Fahrenheit for anybody curious. That's uh, really cold. But 
it'll extend their lifeline by a decent chunk of hours. And as we find out by the end of the episode, if they hadn't, they probably would have died. Or at the very least, they would be oxygen-deprived and might not be resuscitated properly and suffer brain damage. So that was probably a good call. Then Reed goes to shave, and Tucker says the other bit I remember about this episode. You know, from what I remember about my honors biology, stuff keeps growing after you're dead. No. Uh, No, your fingernails and your hair do not grow after you're dead. In fact, what you're referring to is a phenomenon which I don't remember the name of, but it's a thing where the skin kind of ends on itself, which, you know, thus makes it look like fingernails and hair are getting longer, but they're actually not. This is to say nothing of the bloating, but thanks to the cold, the bloating might not be a huge issue, so that's nice. And thanks to the lack of oxygen, the bloating... You know, the, the, the chemical, the body eating itself problem won't be as big of a problem either. So that's cool. So this is when Archer's addicted to Paul. I already talked about that. Reed starts giving letters to his girlfriends. This is a very interesting scene. One of the things that I actually like uh, about certain actors is they really get into their character. And I don't mean like into it as in they care, although obviously they do. I mean into it as in they start to really think about why. One of the biggest things I push as a director, I, I, I know I've only done amateur directing at this point, but it's still true, is I really push the idea of explaining to you what they're actually aware of, which may not be what's on the paper, and what they're actually thinking and feeling in some of their backstory, so you understand why they're saying what they're saying, so that you, the actor, can then put yourself into that headspace and think, okay, this is where I'm at, right? Now, I have absolutely no doubt that someone as talented and amazing as Livingston does the same thing, but I bring this up because Keating has actually done an interview about this episode twice, and during one of those, he talks about all the women that he sent letters to and how he just kind of mentally invented what is effectively a headcanon for his character about how he has trouble getting close to women because there's just a, a degree of uncertainty about himself and about how he interacts with them. So obviously, while he wants to have some kind of long-term relationship of, of sub- substance, something real, he basically can't. So he just kind of keeps reciting letters to his girlfriends. And this, this is also interesting because it's obvious he does care about them and they are on his mind, even when Tucker's like, oh, come on, can't you just record the same letter? And he's like, no, there's subtle differences. I would never say that it was her smile, it was her eyes. So obviously he remembers them. Obviously there is a fondness there. It's just it never developed into something real. And in Keating's mind, that was on Reed. If you're paying attention, I tend to put a little bit of faith into actor interpretation of their own characters, even though that can be considered invalid. I've brought this up in two major points over the course of my career of discussing Star Trek. One with uh, Captain Janeway, who Kate Mulgrew had her own impression of the character, and that came across in her acting, and I've talked about that many times. And the other is Ducat with Mark Alemo, who also had his own interpretation, and in fact flat out disagreed with several aspects of where his character was written, and thus that also comes across in his performance and leads to Ducat being a more interesting character, if I might be so bold. Again, lots of people disagreed with me on my discussions about Ducat, and that was awesome. Because we can all look at the same thing and think something different about it. I-D-I-C. Love it. Anyways, so, Reed does this whole thing. 
and I, if I could share a personal perspective really quick, how many of you are in a similar boat there? I remember every girlfriend I've ever been with. It's not a big list, obviously. And I, I remember three of them fondly. And I have no doubt whatsoever that they never think of me, that they never remember me, that I'm not even so much as a blip on their radar. But I have to admit, if I was in a shuttle pod and dying and wanting to send out messages to people after I'd sent out messages to you know, my sister and my nieces and my mom and my dad and my friends and my, my family, I would want to reach out to, well, leave a message for those three women and be like, hey, you know, I hope things are going well for you. I hope things actually worked out. I'm sorry things turned out badly. There's plenty of things I'd love to say there. I'm curious if any of you have a similar vibe going on for whoever it is you've been with in the past. Because again, I mean, it's, it's almost silly, right? They, they might even remember me. They probably would not remember me. And that's fine. But when we're in these kind of circumstances, we, our, our thoughts tend to get a little bit sharper. You know what I mean? When you're in a true... When things are actually bad, your thoughts get a little bit sharper. One time recently, I was in a very bad way, and when I got, uh, you know, when I was able to interact with a friend of mine, the first thing I did was I apologized to him for a raiding incident in World of Warcraft that had happened years before that I felt terrible for. He had no idea what I was talking about. I had to explain to him what I did and how sorry I was for it. It's not a big deal. I basically decided to go and join another raiding team rather than be there for his, because I wanted to make progress in Ice Crown Citadel. I'll even tell you the specific raid. So I remember that. And I remember feeling absolutely terrible about that. He didn't even remember the incident. You see what I mean? <laughs> I'm sure at least some of you have felt that before, and that makes me sad, because that means some of you have been where actually bad can be, and that sucks. No one should have to deal with actually bad. So I'm sorry. If it's not obvious, this episode hit me very deeply emotionally. It actually drew tears, not for any of the things that have happened so far, but for the very next scene. Reed Tucker actually talks about Hoshi and Travis, how young they were, mid, mid to low 20s, and how, you know, God, we took them bored and they're dead and that's horrible. And Reed has this amazing discourse, this amazing speech about how he wasn't close to his family and he wasn't close to his girlfriends and he wasn't close to anybody. He didn't really have anyone that connected to him. If I was doing my rewrite, I would add in the woman from the previous episode, uh, Silent Enemy. I would add her here. She's the only one I ever connected with and, well, that didn't work out either. So... Just a little line to acknowledge that little change I would have done. Very, very minor change. And then he, he lays it out because... Because he finally feels like he's found some place where he belongs. And I imagine a lot more of you actually know exactly what that feels like. To have finally found a group or a community or whatever where you actually feel accepted and comfortable and like you can actually connect with people. This is really the first characterization Reed has gotten this whole show. But it's damn good. It's a good, it's, it's, it's a good presentation. It's a good execution. 
he has found family because family is chosen so his whole speech about this is just oh god that's that's what drew the tears that scene that speech his performance and then tucker blows out the light and says suddenly a few more minutes sound a lot more appealing damn damn episode <sighs> so then they decide to get super drunk this is when the whole tactician engineer thing kind of gets thrown out the window, by the way. I meant to build that up a little bit more because I kept having this theory that he was approaching it a tactician and he was approaching it as an engineer, and then I corrected myself because that's actually completely untrue. Because a tactician thinks around problems too. That's their job. Even a soldier has to think about how exactly to get from point A to point B as a problem to be solved. No, the problem is it's all about the two's mentality. One of them has decided to cope by simply embracing. The other has decided to cope by total disbelief. And they are both wrong, if we're being honest. Both of them are approaching this from a bit of an extreme. But we can forgive that because they are, again, doomed. So, what we see is their approaches kind of drift closer to each other's mentality o over the course of the episode. They start drinking, talking about to Paul's bum. I'd make fun, but actually, for once, that's actually done well. And it really does help to showcase um, the breaking of tension, the drunkenness, and the fact that they're willing to say things that they otherwise would in no way ever actually admit. Funnily enough, when, when Reed tries to push Tucker about T'Pol being attractive, Tucker doesn't actually respond. Did you catch that? He kind of dances around it like, yeah, you know, well, she's a Vulcan, is his response. I find that very interesting. I think they had those seeds planted well early, and I can see why. Again, uh, Trenier and Blaylock actually do have really good chemistry together, so I can totally see that. Anyways, <clears throat> then something interesting happens, which is awesome. So they finally get a transmission from Hoshi. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But they can't respond. What the episode then does at this point is actually very smart. Now, I, talk, I just talked about the camera moving around. But sometimes you actually want the camera locked in place because you want a limited field of view. You want to reduce the amount of information the audience has to increase tension or suspense. Now, unlike earlier's example with the Hitchcockian thing, now we don't know and they don't know. Nobody actually knows what's going on. They could have easily and effortlessly decided to pat out the episode with a few shots of Enterprise. Oh my god, we detected an explosion. Quick, head there immediately. And that would have incredibly sapped the drama and suspense of the moment. Instead, the camera stays firmly fixed on Reed and Tucker, and it's all about them and theirs. Having had the big character moment, we then have their reaction to Hoshi's message, which is overwhelming joy. I almost started crying up again, especially from Reed, who is ecstatic, because they're not dead, because his family, which he finally found, is still alive. Think about that for a moment. Think about what that would feel like. 
Because this whole time they've assumed they were dead and they just hadn't even properly begun to mourn because they couldn't. It was too recent. It was too visceral. But then that relief, even realizing that they are still doomed and cannot interact with them, doesn't take away from the fact that their overall, the emotional side of things is still far more on the side of relief because if nothing else, Enterprise is okay. Great scene. Great scene. Then speed becomes relevant again. Once again, I do like how speed is actually relevant in Star Trek. Finally. And um, I, so, you know, they make the mention, well, you know, if they're coming at, uh, to us, they're probably coming at, at, you know, casual pace, warp two, warp three. They're days out. They could get here much, much quicker. They also point out that they are trying to head out to them at impulse and correctly point out that that means absolutely nothing whatsoever. That's going to be a difference of seconds in comparison to the amount of speed that the Enterprise is going. So, completely pointless, right? They might notice we haven't talked to them, and they might increase speed. Why don't we just frickin' shoot our engines? And all of this is good storytelling, by the way, in my opinion. What this is is an actual dilemma and actual limitations and people trying to actually suss out a manner to solve it not by using technobabble not by using magic or confetti or stupidity you know plot armor or because we're right or anything like that no instead they look at the situation like okay because life is life and math is math our speed of trying to reach them is so inconsequential that we don't need those engines but what we do need is for them to speed up so if we could send out a signal flare, so they detonate the impulse engines, and here we are. I really like how that is part of the solution. But i got to share something with you. I have a note here to, make, to remind me. I almost forgot about it. So the storm's kind of passed. You probably noticed now it's sunny out and everything. Bucket storms, I swear. But... During, when I was watching this episode when the storm was really in its full throes of actually you know, lightning crashing. I swear I'm not making this up. But at the scene where the, they send out the impulse engines and then they detonate them, within less than a second of the detonation, power went out. I just started laughing. I, I couldn't help it. Like, and I'm just looking at, really? Really? Thankfully, the power came back on after like a minute. But I was just sitting there like, God dang. Anyways, this then leads to the final powerful moment of the episode. Because we're not even done yet. Doctor tries to kill himself. Sacrifice himself so that there will be more air. So that Reed has a better chance of living. And their, their argument at the last minute there is great. Because what we're seeing is two men who are desperate, who are afraid who have a slim chance and a slim hope, but they're not really 100% sure, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. And remember how I mentioned their mentality drifting together? Well, Tucker looks at that and says, all right, might be a little pessimistic is the word they use in the whole episode. I wouldn't use that word. It's more fatalistic. But anyways, I might be a little pessimistic here, but I'm going to go commit suicide so that you have more air, so that you have a better chance of making it. It is, of course, then Reed who shows he's been drifting towards Tucker's thing. No, no, I, I don't want to lose you at this point. 
I, he has a line, I even perhaps call you my friend. The beginnings of an actual connection there, that he is no longer willing to give up simply for the pragmatic purpose of survival. Truth be told, I'm not surprised, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the beginning of the episode, Reed might have been more inclined to go with that, or vice versa. So then they're found. This is the other purpose the dream sequence has, that it shows that, yeah, no, it, it's not a dream this time. Thank you for not faking me out a second time. I hate it when you do that. I think I can think of one episode of Star Trek ever where the second fake-out works for me. Uh, it's not Face of the Enemy. It's the, uh, State of Mind, Facets of the Mind, something like that. It's the episode where Riker keeps waking up. Shatter, shatter, shatter. You remember that? Anyways. So... They get saved. They are in horrifically bad medical care, or that is to say medical state, but they are in really good medical care, so they are going to recover. The end. Really liked this one. And I'm very curious to hear your guys' thoughts when we get to this. I hope my internet's back up, because i got to do some research on the next episode. I'll see you next time, guys.